Welcome to the Counter Narrative Podcast, a show designed to change the way we talk and think about education. By sharing stories of successes and triumphs, we aim to challenge the dominant narrative that often negatively portrays our disenfranchised populations. I'm your host, Charles Williams, an educator for 15 years, a current school principal in Chicago, and an educational consultant. Let's get started. In this episode, I chat with Casey Jakubowski, an educational researcher out of New York. Although he was born in Buffalo, New York, Casey and his parents moved throughout the state because of his father's work. Casey received undergraduate degrees from Fredonia State University, Binghamton State University, and the University of Buffalo, before completing his doctoral degree at SUNY Albany, where he studied educational leadership with a focus on rural education. He started his academic career in rural education and spent a large amount of time working with those living in the commonly unknown spaces between the various small cities in upstate New York, an area vastly different from the populous urban areas that make up much of the southern portion of the state. Casey even took these experiences and transformed them into his book, Thinking About Teaching. You may even be surprised to know that he is an Eagle Scout. During our chat, we discussed the commonly held misconceptions about rural education, that they are backwards or deficient. Casey pushes back against these beliefs, pointing out an urban normativity that prioritizes a different set of standards. In fact, he points out that the struggles that so many schools are experiencing with adapting to this forced change of remote learning is not new for many rural schools because they have become resourceful after spending decades adapting to those issues not often present in urban settings. Casey also shares the need to provide wraparound services for our students and their families, and how we define and provide resources for education. He even provides three great suggestions on how we can all improve the educational experience for everyone involved. Enjoy. Hello, Casey, and welcome to the Counter Narrative Podcast. I am so excited to have you on board today. How are you doing? I'm well, Charles. Thank you for having me on board. Uh, I hope you and your family are doing well with this altered reality of our lockdown. We are. I do appreciate you you asking. Uh, I know that I mentioned to you a little bit before that we are isolating, but we are not alone. Seven of us are together um, my three daughters, my wife, my mother-in-law, and my grandson. So uh, how are you and your family? Uh, my wife and I are doing well, thank you. We have a bird who we've nicknamed our uh, co-worker who keeps our morale up. And other than that, I am beginning to recognize bird songs. I think I heard a Northeastern Cardinal yesterday. Um, but our bird is a parakeet, and she is super excited when we open the windows. I'm sure, you know, she's like, like all those videos that we see of people singing out of their windows to each other, you know, your, your parakeets doing the same thing, huh? Yeah, exactly. And we are social isolating as well. Um, I'm one of the folks because I'm a diabetic and also prone to pneumonia and I have sleep apnea. Uh, I need to stay home and isolate or else I'm going to be in big trouble if I uh, pick up any of the viruses that are moving around. 
All right. Well, yeah, please make sure that you stay inside. And now, Casey, I know that we've already started a little bit, but if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, kind of your journey there. And if you don't mind sharing maybe an interesting fact about yourself. Sure. So uh, I am originally born and raised in the Buffalo, New York region. My parents uh, and I moved around New York because my dad worked for the uh, New York State Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and my mom was a nursing home and nurse. And as part of moving around, we grew up in suburban Buffalo. I am a long-suffering Bills and Sabres fan, but we also lived in uh, some rural areas of the state. I am a proud graduate of Hamburg High School, Go Bulldogs, and uh, I also have uh, undergrad from Fredonia, grad in Binghamton uh, University at Buffalo, and I just finished my doctorate in ed leadership at SUNY Albany, where I looked at rural education because I started my career in rural ed, and I spent a good chunk of it working with people who lived in the in-between spaces of the small cities in upstate New York. It's so funny, Charles. um, A lot of people think New York is a very urban state, but in reality, we have pockets in upstate New York that are decent-sized cities, but until you get to downstate, it doesn't become the metro. In between, there are hills, there are valleys, there are farms, there's historic sites, there's beautiful lakes, there's beautiful mountains, and there's beautiful villages. I think one of the coolest uh, facts about me is I have become the author of a book called Thinking About Teaching, where I look at my rural education perspective, and I just started to tell stories from my memory. So uh, it's from Edumatch Publishers, and I really appreciate Dr. Sarah Thomas from bringing me on board. Another really cool fact about myself and that I'm very proud of is that I'm an Eagle Scout. So uh, believe it or not, I'm actually using some of my skills uh, and um, really thinking about how do I grow a backyard garden, pulled out the Scout Handbook and Scout felt uh, Field Book. So that's a little bit about me. Well, thank you for sharing, Casey. You know, uh, not too long ago, my wife did not understand why I was so upset. I, I was in the garage and I was looking around and I said, babe, where's where's our sleeping bags? And she's like, what do you mean? We like, we don't need sleeping bags. And I was a scout forever, never made it up to Eagle Scout, but I was just like, there was something internally, like, this is not right. There are certain things you should just have. So, um, I completely understand this idea of like that survival mode kind of kicking in, in the background of your brain there. Yeah. Be prepared. Exactly. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and and congratulations on the PhD and, and the book. Um, so, you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned the the idea, the concept of New York being very actual rural, right, outside of uh, some areas. I, I know the whole point of this podcast is changing the narrative and changing perceptions and conceptions of things. So would you mind just kind of diving in a little bit? I, I made a little note here, just maybe some general misconceptions that you have come across when it comes to rural education. Sure. Uh, Charles, that's a great question. And I got to have a huge shout out for the rural ed uh, 
uh, group from that's led by um, Kat Biddle and Amy Anzano and Aaron McHenry Sorber and Daniela Hall Sutherland, who have been trying to change the narrative because for almost the last millennium, most people have looked at rural as backwards or rural as not good enough or rural as deficient. And so what I'm trying to do, and I'm trying to work with uh, the folks in the rural SIG from the American Education Research Association and other places to change the narrative. Uh, We have the opportunity to allow people to see some of the best practices that are out there right now. For instance, the rural ed groups down in Australia They've been doing distance education and virtual education for decades because they've had to out of necessity. And so when everybody says, oh, my goodness, you know, rural is weak, rural is bad. What they're doing is they're actually taking their own mind and making a judgment. And what I hope to do and what I hope that the listeners think about is this. Rural folks are able to spend both sides of a dollar, get the two nickels to rub together and find a way to get a quarter out of it because they work hard. All educators work hard. That is without a doubt. But rural educators have to overcome huge issues that other educators really don't face on a daily basis. We have students in the rural areas who do go on to Harvard, they go on to Princeton, they go on to Yale, but also they go to their local community college, come home and open an auto body repair shop that for those of us who travel or drive by some of these rural areas, when our radiator breaks down, it works. Michael J. Fox starred in that movie back in the 90s about it. But what he and, you know, it was very tropey because he fell in love with a woman and fell in love with the village and wanted to stay. But in reality, it's the rural people who do a lot of the background and backbreaking labor that keeps not only us fed, but it also keeps us sane. Because if you look at it, what are we all talking about? We're talking about going out to nature. And our rural areas are stewards of those nature, but they're also entrepreneurs. They're innovators. They're doing amazing things. You know, Casey, I'm I'm glad you're saying these things because what I'm hearing from you is that there seems to be this, in education at least, this very narrow, defined uh, you know, definition, I guess, of success of what a what a good school is supposed to look like. And while many of us in the urban education areas are saying, hey, we don't fit that definition because we're dealing with X, Y and Z. Right. On the other side, those in rural education are saying, hey, we don't fit either. Right. Because we don't fit X, Y and Z. And so even though we may come from vastly different ends of the spectrum, we are still combating some of the same issues, or at least the idea that we don't fit in. You're absolutely right on that, Charles. And one of the most important areas I can ask people to look in is research on something called urban normativity. It's by uh, Fulkerson and Thomas, who both work at SUNY Oneonta. It's one of our liberal arts colleges here in upstate New York. It's in a rural area. 
the two sociologists have brought together folks to look at why people think urban is normal, when in reality, up until just after World War II, rural was normal, urban was different. Um, the other area is, and I want to reemphasize something you just said, is that when urban and rural folks get together in education and we start asking people who say, well, you're different, that means you're bad. I think what we need to do is we need to educate them. We're not different. We're not bad. What we are is humans who are in circumstances. And so what I think we need to talk about is this idea of local pedagogy, local learning, and place-based learning. There's a lot of work out there that says that you can take a kid who lives in one of the worst blocks in the world, in you know the, um, the uh, Harlem Children's Zone, and provide them with the wraparound opportunities and they'll be successful. There's also a lot of research that says that if you take kids that grow up in some of the poorest areas in rural United States, they too can also be successful. Both groups need support. Both groups need to have resources. And both groups need to have a narrative that comes from our politicians, from our educators, and most importantly, from our people that says, we're all in this together. And this shouldn't be, oh, the suburbs should get the resources or the urban or the rural should get the resources. What we need to redo is we really need to rethink how we define resources for good education. I would challenge people to take a real good look at their school budgets this year, because this is a catastrophe when it comes to money. So what we need to think about is, are the states helping? Are the states not helping and stop playing each other off as enemies? Because realistically, we're all on the same team, which is to make sure kids get the best opportunity to be successful. You know, I'm, I'm glad you said that, Casey. I, I, I've often said this as I've been watching the news, I'm reading these news stories that, you know, it, it seems to be that way, right? Everybody is kind of pitting against each other from, you know, the local government levels to federal government levels, you know, people are pointing fingers at each other, which doesn't solve anything. And so, you know, the concept of we're all in this together, we're all in education for the same purpose, which is to serve our students and make sure that they're successful. You know, we really need to come back to the table. This is a an ideal time to completely alter the face of education. I mean, for years, we've been talking about the things that were wrong with it, but we existed in a system that was, for the most part, intact and running. And so now the entire thing has been disrupted. And so, you know, if, if I, I guess if I wanted to ask you this question, if there was something that you would hope that would come out of this, right, whether it's for rural education, uh, just education as a whole, what is something you think we should do to to shift the our approach to education post-COVID-19? You, you know, Charles, you're right on. And I think the first area we need to start with is that educators need to reclaim the narrative. For a very long time now, we've been told educators in general are deficient. Educators are the root cause. No, they're not the root cause. The root cause is the system. The root cause is the structure. 
So we need to reclaim the narrative. We need to let people know. And I think they're beginning to see it now as they're educating their own children on day in and day out. You know, this is something that local agriculture and local food folks have discovered is that if you know where your food comes from and you understand where your food comes from, then you're more likely to want to have better food. So guess what? Now we know because our kids are and our adults are experiencing education day in and day out, and they're seeing what their children are trying to do, and they're asking questions. And so the first thing I want to bless to people after the COVID-19 is educators are not treated as unuseful individuals. I want to get rid of that old stupid saw that says those that can do, those that can't teach. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. The second area that I really, really want is I want politicians to stop pitting people against each other. I want our politicians to look at the leadership that is what they've been elected to do. I think that this is really critical, is that I don't want to get into politics, so I'm not going to get into politics. But what I am going to ask for is people who go into public service, ask themselves, what is the basis of your service? You know, Robert Greenleaf talks about this concept of servant leadership. I think that when I watched The West Wing, President Bartlett's character said something that has profoundly moved me. Somebody asked him, why is this so important to you? And Bartlett said, because it's the right thing to do, and it's more important than being reelected. It's more important than my career. It's more important than my legacy. I need to make sure that people are okay. I need to make sure that people get what they need. And most importantly, I need to make sure that everybody understands I did this for the right reasons. We've had this narrative for way too long that public service isn't what's best in people's minds. We have to change that. The third gift that I would give to people after COVID-19 is the opportunity for students to see learning as something that does not take place in schools, that does not take place on a worksheet, that takes place in their communities, that takes place by finding mentors, that takes place by getting interested in a topic and going very deep. I am so thrilled that I have had the opportunity to work with S.G. Grant and with Jill Gradwell, who are part of the founders of the C3 movement in social studies. They are some of the most amazing individuals I have ever met in my life. And what they're trying to do is working with this concept of um, inquiry design models for folks to get into real big questions. Media literacy, understanding critical thinking, and moving into this environment of, do I actually really move beyond supporting what I'm hearing in the media into, do I actually know where they're getting their facts from? This is all critical work. You know, Stanford History Education Group by Sam Weinberg and Chauncey Montesano have done phenomenal, phenomenal work. And I'm forgetting some of the other amazing uh, practitioner research scholars out there. 
But I do want to mention um, Leanne Avery of SUNY Oneonta has also done some amazing work about local education. And her idea of place-based science education is profoundly critical and profoundly important for people to look at, not only in rural areas, but in suburban and urban areas, how to use everyday occurrences and everyday incidences and everyday resources to make science pop for kids. Charles, you know this as well as I do. When kids go into school, they are really curious. They are really engaged. And then some long, somewhere along the line, something happens. And my goodness, is it us as the adults? If we're taking curiosity away from children, we're condemning them to a life of boring. And, you know, I work with some of the most creative and innovative and entrepreneurial students at my current work uh, at an engineering school. And I have seen students who have realized that there are problems in the world that need to be solved. And you know what they do with the box? (laughs) They take it. They burn it, they mix the ashes into something else, and they don't build a box. They build a trapezoid, and they solve the problems. And just working with these young men and women and folks every day as they're saying, you know what, no problem is unsolvable, it's inspiring. You know, Casey, I... I I love everything that you just said, you know, the, from reclaiming the narrative, right. To stop pitting, uh, you know, parties against one another to even just the concept that learning has to take place in a brick and mortar building, you know, kind of in this, this, again, this narrow construct. Um, but I think the one that stuck with me the most is just that question. And it is, I think it's scary for educators to ask, um, mostly because I think we're afraid of the answer and it's, are we part of the issue, right? As you said, kids come in curious. You know, I have a three-year-old grandson and it is interesting watching him just explore and try to figure things out. And it doesn't seem natural that that curiosity would just fade away, right? So somewhere along the line, are we part of the problem? Are are we taking that curiosity and, 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 you know, taking the fun out of it, whatever it may be. And so, Casey, the the next question that I have for you is that maybe there are educators out there who are starting to toy with this idea of maybe I need to do something different. When we come back, I need to do something different. So do you have any suggestions or tips on steps that educators can take, you know, if they want to change that narrative, if they no longer want to be part of the problem, but part of the solution? Yeah, yeah, and Charles, um, forgive me for um, quoting out of my own book here, but um, I wrote a chapter called "The Best Lesson I Ever Did," and you know, it was something where I thought, "Wow, I really have an opportunity to do really good, good, cool things." And so, with the best lesson I did was I started with what was the major problem, what was the major area that I wanted to get students through. And what I identified in this, in my best lesson that I ever did, was I didn't want them to think about the Columbian Exchange as a moment in time that was boring, that was a name, date, place, factoid. I actually want them to live and feel and experience it. So what I did was uh, I went out and I bought a whole bunch of food for five sections of classes. 
And the foods were broken down into foods that were native to the Western Hemisphere and foods that were native to the Eastern Hemisphere. And I had the students go through taste testing. And I had them go through uh, their own uh, examination of work in every single book that are not work, I'm sorry, the history of these materials in every single book I could lay my hands on from the library, from my own personal collection, I had them talk to each other. And I had them try to evaluate, you know, was getting the potato a really critical moment in time? Or was it more the disease? Or was it more the fact that one group looked at the concept of land as property versus land as a communal good that needs to be supported. And, you know, one of the areas that I think that we need to recognize is that there's a lot of teachers doing really amazing stuff out there. And what we need to do is find networks of each other to find and support how to move beyond the basics. Now, Teachers are going to the wall. They're doing amazing work right now. And they're not always recognized for the fact that they are creative. I want people to understand and know this. The work that we do in education is very emotional in its labor. We don't get credit as educators for stopping and saying, We've got to take care of Maslow before we take care of the other pyramids of learning. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the most critical areas that we need to do different working forward is taking a break for a moment, taking a breath, and realizing that in a lot of classrooms, we don't do Maslow very well. In a lot of schools, we don't do Maslow very well. Why? Because we're being told by folks you have to come together and work on standards. You have to come together and work on performance indicators. You have to get through student learning objectives. Dang it, we've got to perform on tests. What I would argue is that, yes, that is something that's an outside stressor, but let's take a moment and refocus in on Maslow. Let's look at Harry Wong's first day of school again. But let's also, more importantly, look at building relationships. So if you want to go forward and you have a colleague who you think is an amazing knockdown drag out person, instead of being jealous of the work that they do, or instead of going, God, I could never do that, ask them for help. The second point is that if you have the imposter syndrome going through your head or the narrative of, well, I'm not a very good teacher, I'm not very good at what I do. Stop, rethink, where is that coming from? And ask yourself, is it me or is it the outside world telling me this? And then finally, if you have a kid in your class who you can't stand, who you think they're going to just absolutely make your living nightmare of a day, sit down and say, hey, what are you interested in? I remember Brad, one of my students, who oh, drove me up a wall and down again. In the middle of World War II, he shouted out uh, the unit that I was doing. Uh, on, he just shouted out, hey, I saw something on the History Channel last night about tanks. And I thought, he's never participated in class before. And all of a sudden, I said, tell me about that. And lo and behold, 
Brad and I totally redefined our relationship from I'm throwing you out of class and I'm writing you up to dude, tell me everything you want to know about tanks from the ancient Roman Carthaginian elephants all the way up to the really cool tanks in the 1990s, 2000s when we were there. And you know what? Got to tell you something. Brad did okay. He graduated. He started a small business. He's doing life well. But you know what he said to me on Facebook a couple of years ago when we connected again? I still remember that day he asked me about the tanks, Mr. J. Thank you for not giving up on me. That, Charles, is the story. No child should not be left behind. No child should be given up on. That should be our new model going forward. No child should be given up on. Casey, I love it. No child should be given up on. And, and you're we right. Yeah, I I that. <laughs> That's bad. Yeah. We got to re-wordsmith that. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we'll, we'll play around with it and we'll, we'll get it out there. I, I love that. I, and you're absolutely right. I think if there was more of a focus on, like you said, on Maslow, it would be so much easier not to give up because, you know, we're looking at not not academic, you know, standards and skills, but are we taking care of a child? And it's it's a lot harder to give up on somebody when you're pouring into them, when you're loving on them, than when you're just saying, hey, you're you're not figuring out, you know, these basic math facts or whatever it may be. So absolutely, I love it. And, and Casey, I know you have been doing this throughout. So, you know, if you just want to kind of say, hey, listen back to the episode, that, that would be absolutely fine. But I always want to give a moment for our, my guests to uh, to give some shout outs, you know, to people out there who are doing some amazing work and deserve to be recognized. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that, Charles. I want to, first of all, start with my wife, Elizabeth. I could not have done what I've done without her love and support. And I know that um, Elizabeth, who's an amazing librarian for the New York State Rare and Manuscript Special Collections, is just an inspiring woman. I'd also like to give a huge shout out to my grandmother, Kay Mahler. She wanted to be a teacher, but she could never be a teacher. She had to leave school early and take care of her family. Grandma Kay, this is for you, Grandma Mahler. I became a teacher because of you. I also want to shout out my other grandparents who raised my dad and my great aunts, Charlotte, who's no longer with us, and Terry, and my uncle, Steve because they inspire me. But you know who I'm really most inspired about my family, and then I'll get to the professionals, is my brother, Nick. He has done amazing. The world was stacked against him, and now my brother fixes computers for Erie County Community College out near Buffalo, New York, and damn if he's not amazing, excuse my language, with technology. I'd like to also give a shout-out to my students, because they inspire me day in and day out. They truly are making a difference in the world. And I'd also like to give a shout out professionally to my dear friend and dear mentor, Nancy Hankley, who is currently with Syracuse University as a students with disabilities specialist. You know, Nancy took a very, very young teacher who was kind of brash and um, gave him a swift kick in the butt. (laughs) But you know what was more importantly than Nancy's mentorship? was her belief that I could do great things. And so Nancy has inspired me and she has inspired me daily, weekly, monthly, because she is the consummate professional. 
And I also say that I am truly inspired by the educators out there who go into work every day facing the odds that a lawyer or a doctor or somebody else will be like, peace out, I can't do this. And you know what they say every day? Give me your tired, give me your poor, give me your huddled masses, give me the kids who don't have a roof over their head or food in their stomach, and I will help them. If you think about it right, right now, the nurses, the doctors, the janitors, the food stalkers, stockers, the farmers, the truck transportation folks, you know, people who we as a society don't value, they're showing the amazing work that they do day in and day out. And I think it's time for us to stop celebrating celebrities. And I think it's time for us to stop celebrating people who, because of sheer dumb luck, have a fortune. I think instead what we need to do is go up to that person who is a nursing home aide, who may be the only person who an elderly individual gets to see on a regular basis. And we need to say more than just thank you. We need to say, what do I need to do to help you live a life so that you are comfortable because you are providing a service to society that nobody else is doing? That's who inspires me, Charles. And I really think about it. My God, I am so blessed to have a voice and an opportunity. I just want people to realize that we can't go back to the way we were. We have to go forward. We have to say thank you. We have to, as a society, be willing to say, hey, if you've made a ton of money, that's great. But we need you to provide a little bit of help and support to everybody else. You know, I know right now that there are students out there who are looking at this upcoming fall and going, I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know what I'm going to eat. And you know what? That frightens me because aren't we supposed to be the wealthiest country in the world? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, Casey, you, I think you've hit the nail on the head with those last sentiments. You know, the idea that everyone wants to talk about going back to normal and that normal I don't think will exist. I don't think it should exist. I think that we should absolutely reside in a new normal where our, our attention is shifted, our gratitude is shifted, our appreciation is shifted. It needs to be different because if we just go back to doing the same old things, right? What is that, I, that idea that um, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and yet expecting a different result? Yeah, you know, and it's something I learned at Binghamton University when I earned my master's in history there. Uh, go Bearcats. Today is uh, Binghamton University Day. Um, but I learned so much from my fellow students there. And, you know, Binghamton's a unique city because it started as a company town. It became a hub in the southern tier of New York. It's in between Scranton, Pennsylvania and Syracuse, New York. And um, Binghamton's program there asks us to make a, a concerted effort to question why are we doing what we're doing. And one of the points that I learned there was the devastation that a town can face when its biggest employer shuts down and moves. And, you know, a lot of our rural areas are suffering. A lot of our urban areas are suffering because people have given up. People have moved out. 
you know, it didn't help that banks redlined areas of cities to prevent um, underrepresented individuals from moving in. You know what else really didn't help? When people decided that humans were a disposable commodity. And I learned at Binghamton as a history major that this concept existed called noblesse oblige. And it was the idea that the wealthy had to take care of people because they had an obligation and a responsibility. Now, granted, they were also scared of going to hell because, you know, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, they were religious people. But what we need to do is we need to ask everybody to reaffirm their social contract. Yes, I will live a good life, but I'm also going to make sure that the people around me, the people who are my employees, can live a good life as well. Because it only helps, especially in a consumer-based economy, right? We don't want to educate kids to be consumers. We don't want to educate them to be automatons. We want them to be critical thinkers. We want them to be critical doers. And most importantly, and I think this is where the push hits the shove, which hits the rock, is that new normal can't exist anymore. The normal has to be, if you have a great idea, let's help get you into the structure where you can let that idea fly. And if you're going along and something doesn't work, you make a mistake or a failure happens, it's not categorically a disaster. It's a learning experience and you should be able to recover from it. Because after all, as we noticed with the folks who led the banks during the bank failure, we slapped their wrists, but they still got to keep their money and they got to keep their careers. Why should an individual who fails a test in fourth grade be condemned for the rest of their life? It makes no sense to me. Absolutely, Casey. And thank you. This, you Some profound ideas, profound uh, words from you. And so, Casey, if any of our listeners want to learn more about you or even just connect and, and speak to you more on any of these topics, where can they find you? How can they follow you? So I'm on Twitter uh, at KCJ underscore EDU. Um, I also have a Weebly blog, uh, C. Jacobowski, J-A-K-U-B-O-W-S-K-I. And also I have a Thinking About Teaching Facebook page. And uh, I'm really just trying to get out there. I'm more than willing to talk to people as long as they're reasonable. Uh, and one of the other areas I'd like to share is if you're interested in interacting with my book or having me virtually Skype into a school or to a district or to a community, please let me know. I'm very interested in not only talking with people, but also um, uh, as Pinky and the Brain used to talk about on the Animaniacs cartoon, uh, take over the universe so that we have the best and the brightest out there. <laughs> I love it, Casey. I love it. So I want to say thank you so much, not only for being on the show, but just for all of the wonderful work that you're doing and for just putting this information and knowledge out there. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome, Charles. Thank you for interviewing me. It's an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to be able to speak with you and with your audience.
I want to thank you for listening to the Counter Narrative Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow the show on Twitter at the CN Podcast and the host at underscore CW Consulting. Take care.